Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, or excuse me, verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and he made us a kingdom Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha. And the Omega says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Do you ever have a moment in your life when you were, um, you could look back, maybe it was in your kid or as a young adult, teenager, or maybe even in, in your old age or older ages, you had this moment when you were filled with awe and wonder, and that awe and wonder caused you to desire to know more about this thing that you were filled with awe and wonder about. Anybody have one of those moments? I'm alone. Kathy, it's you and I. Okay. Um, I had that moment when I was, uh, I think, all of about 12 years old, 11 years old. My dad and my mom, we'd moved to Arizona um, from Colorado. Um, and we'd gone to, um, I had some relatives visiting, some friends visiting. And we'd gone to an air show for the very first time. And it was an air show in southern Arizona. And we went down there and... There was a C-130 Hercules, which is this really big cargo plane that's a prop plane, four props on it. And they let us go in and explore it. And me and this, this friend of our family, and she sat in the, the pilot seat and I sat in the co-pilot seat. And I'm sitting in this aircraft, this big, huge thing. And I'm looking at all these controls around me, these dials, and I, I really want to touch a lot of them. And I know I'm not supposed to, but I'm just, I'm filled with awe and wonder that this big, huge thing gets off the ground and, and flies and carries troops and, and troops jump out of it and they drop cargo out of it and they land in places all over the world. And this C-130s is a unique aircraft because it can land in short distances and take off in short distances. And it's a very versatile aircraft and it's a very old aircraft that is still being used by military today. And I was just in awe of this aircraft. And so I learned more about airplanes, and so when I left out of that situation, we had to do this science project in the seventh grade, and so I did, I built a balsa wood airplane, and I, and I had to cover the wings with cloth, and my dad helped me on it, he was an A&P mechanic, and I began to learn about Bernoulli's Principle. And Bernoulli's principle talks about how an aircraft can actually fly. And Dave Harkey can correct me on this later. So, so you have, he's a pilot, so he can help me on this. But so the, basically the principle is the shape of the wing means that the, the air underneath the wing moves much quicker than the air over the wing because it's a greater distance. And so it creates lift and that it lifts off the ground. And so I did my science project on this and is just amazed at how all these different airplanes can fly. But the really awe moment happened when we went to another air show. And this time it was out of Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. And that's a picture of an F-15 Eagle. Now, now that aircraft is pretty much mothballed nowadays. It's been replaced by quite a few others. But the F-15 was, during that time, the aircraft with the quickest climb, vertical climb ratio of any aircraft in the arsenal. 
And we were standing there. And all of a sudden, you can see this spot in the distance. And all of a sudden, this airplane just came racing across. And it was probably about 100 feet off the deck. And right there in front of the stands and everybody, it went straight vertical. And the afterburners hit, and you could feel the thrust, and the sound was deafening. And I was like, man, I have got to get one of those, okay? <laughs> All right, man, oh my goodness. I mean, I, I was probably about 14 years old of age watching that thing go off. And so at that point, I decided, you know, I'm going to become a pilot. I'm going to have, like, to go to Air Force and become an Air Force pilot and fly a fighter jet. And, and God had a different plan for my life, but that is what... And so I began to learn and I began to do things and understand aircraft. I had a picture of F-15 on my wall in my bedroom alongside the Corvette, okay? And I was like excited about these things. I was in awe of the raw power of that aircraft. And so I began to learn about it. I, I used to be able to give you all the, like how far it could go on a single tank of gas, what its munitions payload could be, how many rounds it could hold for its guns. I mean, I used to know all that information because I was in awe of this aircraft. I was in awe of what it could do and how it could be utilized. They say there are only two types of theologians in the world. There's good ones and bad ones. But everybody's a theologian. I've heard it stated from people that I, I really don't care to learn about theology. I really don't care to, to learn about all those things. And, and I think they get confused with the academic study of systematic theology versus the idea and understanding of knowing who God is. Because that's what theology is all about. is understanding who God is and being in awe of him. Revelation, if you hear it, if you feel it, if you let it absorb your senses, will place you into a position of being in total and complete awe of God. The author John to the seven churches here begins very quickly with a sense of awe as he lays out a Trinitarian picture of our God. And I've heard people asking, and, and even as a kid going along, I remember asking my parents, and it, it was a, parents that, a question that caused my parents to just pause and look at me. Like, what's the big deal about the Trinity? Why do we need to believe in the Trinity, why do we need to believe one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? God the Father is not God the Son and not God the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father and he's not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. Three persons, one God, called co-equal, eternally existent and powerful. Why do we need to believe that? One of the biggest reasons we need to believe that was said this week in, in our sermon chat by Tom Dunbar. Tom said, because if you don't believe in it, you don't believe in God. You cannot know God. You cannot understand God. You cannot understand the incredible salvific work of Jesus Christ if you don't believe in the Trinity. Amen. You see, what's very interesting is you roll into the New Testament and you don't get this sense in the New Testament that when the Trinity is introduced, that they're introducing a new topic. Because the Shema was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. When the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit is referenced in the Old Testament, we see this and we see this understanding that the Israelites seem to have this understanding that, that God has different roles, different personalities within the, with persons within the Godhead and it's furtherly, explicitly understood in the New Testament when God the Son is put on full display before all of humanity. But the Trinity is not a new topic. In fact, and I know one people want to argue over this and, and say, is this really truly a reference to the, to the Trinity? But I, I just can't help but, but not think about it. When I look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And we read in the New Testament that God the Son is credited for creating all things in creation so the father designs it the son makes it the spirit sustains it trinity 
right there at the very beginning. This is essential to our belief and understanding, and it shouldn't surprise us that right here at the beginning of Revelation, we see the Trinity being unfolded for us. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and him who was and him who is to come. I want to stop right there. God the Father is the one that authors grace and peace. We understand grace as the unmerited favor of God given to us through Jesus Christ. Authored, created by God for us, to us. We don't understand grace from a human standpoint. We understand grace from how God made it, designed it, and gave it. And peace. And we understand peace not in this temporary fashion of of, of the the not the lack of war or the lack of conflict but rather we understand peace as this eternal placement that Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf for us so that it can be no strife and no enmity between God and man that is peace and who authored that peace for us the father did it's very interesting this title that is given here This section opens with and closes with who is, who was, and who is to come. And I think that's significant for us in that everything that is going to be talked about within this section of Scripture is a a concise theology about God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is and was and is to come. God the Holy Spirit is, was, and is to come. God the Son is, was, and is to come. You see, it's important for you to understand that all three persons within the God have an eternally existence from before the foundation of the world and will eternally exist well beyond after the world is made new. God has existed this way. God has not changed. And there are modalists and there are other theologians out there, bad theologians out there, that have said God has changed. To first it was the Father, and then when, and in the New Testament, he became the Son, and then, and then after the Son, he became the Holy Spirit. That he's not three persons, but he's, he's just a changing God. But according to Scripture, God does not change. He remains the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God has remained this way throughout all time and before time even began to exist. God has been this way. And what's interesting about this here is this title, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come, is this idea behind the name of God. You see, in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Moses was in the wilderness. He'd fled out of Egypt because he'd, he'd killed an Egyptian slave master and he was forced to leave. And he's in the wilderness and he's tending this flock and God appears to Moses in this burning bush. And Moses asked this question after God has commanded him to return to Egypt and deliver his people out. Moses has asked this question to God, who shall I say sent me? He said, tell them, I am who I am. Now, what's very interesting is this is the first person of the name of God. And Yahweh in scriptures, the high holy name of God that is in the scriptures is the third person of I am who I am. And in this text, we see this this Greek understanding of this reference to the holy name of God, Yahweh. God is revealing himself to us in revelation that the same God who spoke to Moses in the wilderness is the same God who is speaking to us now. Because he's the God who is and the God who was and the God who is to come. Tom made a really good point this week that John in his, both his gospel and his epistles and as well as in the book of Revelation is really, really, really big on the eternality of God. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was God from the very beginning and will be to the very end. John has different statements about the I am. He says in John chapter 6, verse 35, also in 41, 48, and 51, he goes, I, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He also says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7 and 9, I am the door of the sheep. In John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. John 10, 11 and 14, I am the good shepherd. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 1, 5, I am the true vine. God is being revealed to us in this text. The next thing that is said here in John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, it says, and who was and is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, this is very interesting. You're going to have to go to the next slide for me. This is, oh, wait, there it goes. Now it's working again, maybe. Got to love electronics. It talks about the seven churches before the throne, or the seven spirits before the throne. There's one thing you're going to need to understand about the book of Revelation. This is prophetic and apocalyptic language. When a number is used, it is not always referencing a numerical reference. There's meaning and there's significance behind the number that is being used. I'm not alone in, in agreeing in, in this statement. Many theologians agree with me, Piper, MacArthur, others, who agree that when it's referencing the seven spirits here, it's not this seven different spirits, but rather it's the full, complete, manifold revelation of the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit before the throne of God. And then this perfect communion, this perfect fellowship is taking place in the throne room of God between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That in this text, it begins with the Father and then it moves to the Holy Spirit who is present. And, and when the author of Revelation is speaking here, he is speaking God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And it seems to be a fulfillment of a passage of Scripture. That, and this was new to me this week when I was studying this. It was so much fun to discover. Out of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 5. And it says this in Isaiah 11, 2 through 5. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked and righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. John 15, 26 says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Father is the author, the designer of grace and peace. The Holy Spirit, through his ministry to us, is the sustainer of grace and peace. How do you still know what grace and peace looks like? It's because the Holy Spirit within us. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you can't grasp grace and peace from God. You can't grasp what God had designed before eternity began about grace and peace. It is only through the Holy Spirit's sustaining work in us that we get what grace and peace looks like. The only way we know anything about Grace and peace is because of the one who provided it for us. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, we discovered that Jesus is the full, complete revelation of God. 
So it shouldn't surprise us that the way we discover what God designed and the Spirit sustains is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the next thing we learn about in this text is the Son. It says here, starting in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I want to pause as we go through this wing. We are going to learn nine things about Jesus Christ. This is a really bad sermon. I don't have three points in a poem, okay? Listen, seriously, nine things. The author of the book of Revelation here is is compacting such incredible theology into this little, tiny, small portion of Scripture. How many of you all have ever played with, like, fireworks? Like, come on. All right, there we go. Get some more hands. Okay. We got little black cats that aren't really anything. But all of a sudden, you start getting the things called MD-80s, MD-90s, the things that you would drop in toilets, and we won't go, go there, but we do, right? But, and all of, but, but they, they get a little bit bigger. But all of a sudden, you go from a black cat, if it goes off, you know, you used to always joke around with, like, if you held a black cat and you closed up your fist to blow your fingers off. Well, maybe a little bit of flesh. But you do that with an MD-90, yeah, your fingers are going to be gone. Like this huge amount of, 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 of firepower in this little small thing. It's just amazing. But if you think gunpowder is, is good, you get a thing of nitroglycerin, okay? You take nitroglycerin in that small amount of package, and now you got stuff that you can blow up cars with. He is not dealing with a large section of Scripture here. But in these five verses, he's going to throw at us a powerful portrait, picture of our God. Because the author of Revelation, before we dive into this whole book, wants us on our knees, face first before God saying, this is our God. Because when we roll into this book, it's not to be about questioning what God is doing, but rather it should call awe and reverence and worship for our God. He goes on and he says that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. Commentary that I was reading this week um, made this powerful statement. I want to read it for you. Notice that in the New Testament world of thought, we make discoveries about who we are while we are pondering the revelation of who God is. We discover our own belovedness when we perceive the love of God. When we catch a vision of God's love for all the earth, we then catch a clear and awesome vision of our task toward the creation as his priests. When we discover that all of history is bounded by the decision of God, we are set free from the need to panic about our own generation. Instead, we are challenged to take hold of our time as disciples of Jesus Christ What we do and say has lasting significance because of Jesus Christ. It's really important for me and for all of us to understand that this is given to us, not just so that we can sit here and go, man, this is our God and I've got a better understanding of who he is, but rather this text should shape our hearts and mold us and change us in our identity. I was talking with Kelsey this week. One of the things you need to know about Kelsey and, and her heart and her passion for our kids and is, what has been is that I'm going to rock our parents' worlds a little bit right now, but Kelsey doesn't desire your kids to be good kids. Kelsey desires your kids to be Christ followers. To know who Christ is and to have that knowledge change our little kids' hearts and how they're supposed to live for him. She wants them to know that the Bible is the truth of God. And so that when they're old and they, older and they get challenged by the world about the word of God, they've got this foundation that the Bible is the truth and Jesus is the true God. And because of who Jesus Christ is, it is a call for our kids to live a certain way. Not to be good, but to be holy. But to have their lives changed by Jesus Christ. 
This text is the same for us, is that as we learn about who God is here, it should change our hearts. The very fact that Jesus is the faithful witness means that he's the truly perfect witness, full revelation about God. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we read, because Jesus Christ was this faithful witness, we then are supposed to be ambassadors. We're supposed to be proclaimers of this perfect revelation. And we too witnesses ourselves. The next thing we read here is that he is the firstborn of the dead. This idea of firstbornship is preeminence. This idea that there is none higher, none more supreme, none greater than Jesus Christ. And he's the firstborn of the dead. Now that's maybe a weird statement to us. But it carries with it the idea that Jesus Christ was the first one to die and be resurrected to eternality. Lazarus was resurrected, but guess what? Lazarus died again. That stinks. Like, we're like, oh man, that must have been so cool for Lazarus to get up and walk out of the grave. Sure, but guess what? He got to experience death twice. Jesus Christ is the firstborn, the one who died and then got up and walked out of the grave, never ever to die again. The great news is that's our future. That's, that's what we have to look forward to. If, we don't, if Jesus doesn't come back before then and establish the new heavens and the new earth, we too will die. But when we get up and we walk out of that grave, it'll be to eternity. Never to face death again. That's what we have to look forward to. Does that change how we live right now? It should. It should change how we see the world and it should change how we risk for in this lifetime. Are we scared to risk for God in this life? And we shouldn't be. Because what's waiting for us is heaven. You know, I, I, I think of, of Faith Teague, a friend of ours, Christy's from uh, when she was working over on the wet side as a PA. Faith was her nurse. Loved Jesus. Faith is now in the Philippines getting ready to go, desiring to go back into the Middle East and go into Syria to do medical missions in Syria and bring the love of Christ into a very dark place where bombs and grenades are going off, where tomorrow is not promised. And she can do this because Christ is the firstborn of the dead. Because Christ is that, she can go do that. She can risk greatly because Christ is the firstborn of the dead. This knowledge of who God is changes how she lives. Is it changing how we live? Is it changing how we see our days? And how we can risk for our God and say, I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to protect myself. Because God will take care. He is the firstborn of the dead. And someday I too will get up and walk out of the grave. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Boy, do we need to know that this year. Election year. Stuff, campaigns, ads already started on the TV. Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. He establishes authority. All authority is accountable to him. Jesus is in charge. We need to speak about that this year. It's not about us endorsing a certain candidate. It's about saying, you know what? We're going to vote along biblical lines, but no matter who wins, we will not be afraid. We will not fear. We will not sit there and cower and bow down because our king is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Though we don't see that fully yet, it's coming. And all these things are happening to come to the fulfillment of the days and ages where in which Christ's kingdom will be fully established on heaven and on earth. And we can believe and know this and be confident. Christians should not be found cowering in the corner, hiding. During these days, we should be loud and saying, my God is ruler over all. Jesus is the one who loves He freely gave his love to us. Jesus bound himself to us in the new covenant. A people undeserving of this love, he loved. 
is the one who loves. And because we've loved, been loved so greatly, we can love others so greatly. I was having a conversation with someone this week about who struggled this last month, who struggles a little bit with, um, like, how long do I have to love this person before I can finally say I'm done with you? And, and my question back to them was, how long does Jesus love you before he says he's done with you? The one, he is the one who has freed us from our sins by his blood. Brothers and sisters, we have been forgiven so much. We can never, ever do anything to earn the forgiveness. We have been, we have been set free from the law of sin and death. We are free. Why don't we live like it? Like a people who are free are no longer bound and shackled by, by sin and worry and anxiety and, and repetitive things that, that continue to entangle us. You know, in Hebrews, we talked about running that race apart from those things that entangle us and hinder us. And, and I will challenge you with this. A dear friend of mine, when, when I was struggling with some things in my life, and he had struggled with some of the same things, things said to me, you know, Scott, what, what I realized in the midst of my continual sin struggle was that I was not in awe of God enough. I had a problem of, of worshiping God, of seeing how truly big and glorious my God is. You see, that's the problem is when we don't understand, we don't grasp, we don't take in this passage and we think about these things that we continue to struggle in our sin because we don't see that God is big enough to set us free from our sin. God isn't big enough to deliver me out of this mess, so I'm going to stay in it. And God remains small and powerless. And the author is setting up God in this huge, magnificent way in this book of Revelation saying, this is God. Jesus is the one who appointed us to be his kingdom. Your text says here, he made us a kingdom. The word here that's used for made also can carry with it this idea of not just making us a kingdom and, and this sense that, okay, great, our identity's changed, but rather appointed to a new function. And that carries with it a little different nuance, doesn't it? We're not just made new to just sit and be something different, but rather we're appointed to a new function, that we are appointed to be this family, this kingdom of God, and that we now have a role to accomplish, a role to do, something that we're appointed now to do. According to Ephesians, that we are saved by grace to do this work that was prepared beforehand for us to do. Well, what is it that we've been saved as a kingdom to do? He says, this one, Jesus Christ, appointed us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. We are called, all of us called to be priests. How many of you knew that? Like, you are called to be a priest. Well, what is the priest's role? A priest's role is to reconcile people to God. So we have been appointed to be into this new identity to bring people into right relationship with God. That is what we're changed to do and to make is we are called to go out and tell the people about Jesus Christ and take people who were once far away from God and bring them near to God through the truth of Jesus Christ. That is our role. That is our responsibility on this earth. We weren't, we weren't appointed here to be doctors, lawyers, firemen, policemen, uh, teachers, uh, uh, you name it. We were called here. We were changed by Jesus Christ, appointed to be a kingdom of priests, reconciling people to God. It also goes on to say, to him is the glory and power there's only one worthy of our worship. Only one. The author wants us to understand that. That the provider of grace and peace is Jesus Christ. 
The Father authored this great plan of grace and peace. The Spirit has come to sustain it within us. But the way we know it, the way it has been given to us is through Jesus Christ. He perfectly demonstrated grace and peace in his life. He enabled grace and peace to us through his death. And he guaranteed grace and peace to us through his resurrection. And this one, this one who is only worthy of our, is the only one worthy of our praise, he is coming. He is coming and we should be so excited about that. He is coming. He concludes this section by saying, I am the way, excuse me, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. God was complete, perfect, having all power, having all authority, having all dominion, lacking in nothing before the world ever began. God will be complete, perfect, holy, just, righteous, well, after the world has ended. He is the Alpha, He is the Omega. He is the one who is, the one who was, He is the one to come. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how does this understanding change how we live? I appreciated the honesty in our sermon chat this week is there was some discussion about like that's the struggle of this text is to wonder like this is such incredible theology and we're sitting oh man God you are so amazing but how does it call us how does it challenge us to change how we live I've seen some of examples of that to keep from embarrassing this individual I won't say this person's name, but we read through the book of Revelation a couple weeks ago. And this person is terrified of public speaking. I mean, there's, there's being scared of public speaking. Like, I don't want to get up and do that. Eh. And then there's like cold sweat, chills, like knees knocking, kind of scared. But this person became so in awe of God. And so in awe of the word that they had to be up here and had to read God's word. You see, when we see the, how amazing and powerful our God is, all of a sudden we're called out of our comfort zone, out of the things that we would normally do, things that terrify us, and we're able to do them because our awe, our focus is on God, not on what our fear was. God draws us out of that when our awe is on him. There's also someone else, one of our elders, was put in a situation where they were called to help this person who needed to find a new car. And it was much more than going to find a car, as God often does. And all of a sudden, instead of talking about cars and on this journey and on this traveling, they're talking about death and the grief and the mourning that this person is going in. And and this elder can begin to love on and be present in that moment because Christ is the firstborn of the dead. That for those who are in Jesus Christ, there's resurrection, there's hope. He has brought peace between God and man. He is the one who set us free from sin and death. And so this person can be present in that moment and love this person where they're at because they believe this is who God is. And they can be there in this moment. You see, the knowledge of who God is changes how we're present. They didn't have to be worried, fearful, have an answer, give a justification. Rather, they could be present and love them and point them towards who God is. Some of us have a, have a problem with that a little bit. We like having all the answers. Especially when we talk to people who are around us, we, we want to give words of counsel that are helpful. We want to give solutions that will help people be delivered out of this. But sometimes 
We don't have those, but because of who God is, we can be in those moments. God gives us awe. God is almighty. God is holy. God is just. God is good. And our prayer for you this morning as we continue to dive into this text is that as you go back and you read, and I hope you do through these verses, you let the awe of God fill your heart and mind. And you let the fear and the anxiety, you, you begin to see your life be exposed to the light of the awe of God. And it's, it's terrifying. I think Hebrews, the author of Hebrews was so right that it's, it's, it's terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. Because when we see the greater picture we get of our holy God and who he is, and all of a sudden we look in the mirror and we realize who we are and we're like, man, what am I? Who am I that God would love me? Who am I that God would free me? And the answer is nobody. The beauty of what God is doing and putting on display and here in Revelation is God is saying, this is the holy, awesome God. And if we have a proper understanding of him, then we want him to rule and reign in every area, in every aspect of our lives. And like Kelsey's desire for our kids, my desire for you is that this passage and these things won't be an academic exercise, but rather become something that radically transforms your heart. And I pray that at many times during this study of Revelation, you will be found on your knees face before God. In a time alone with God, with the book word of God open, that you'll be found on your knees, on your face before God, maybe even weeping, going, God, you are amazing, you are awesome, you are holy, and I don't deserve this. That I'm so grateful that you are my God. And then I get to be part of your kingdom and I want to be that priest who brings people to this understanding of how amazing and powerful you are. And brothers and sisters, if your understanding of this book does not lead you to this place, you've missed the point of this book. Amen. This book is about the awe of God. In a few chapters, we're going to hear the angel chorus is going off. On the sounds and praises and the exaltation of God. Because they get it. But unfortunately this world is still dimming. The power, the might, and the glory and splendor of our God. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you are who you are. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And I pray that our awe and our wonder and our amazement of you would just increase as we study this book. And we'd begin to realize, Lord, we can do things that are completely outside of our comfort zones and outside of our realms of, <laughs> because of fear and other things that we're like, we could step out and be bold and courageous for our God because this is who you are. May we understand that you've got this life for us to live that we keep selling short. We keep trying to counterfeit other things in. When you're saying, just come and, and see me and know me and out of Hebrews, draw near and discover the God who, who is gracious and loving and sympathetic. And that we have this high priest who calls us into the throne room of God and says, I know you're messy. I know you're messed up. I know you're broken. I know you're fearful. I know you struggle with sin. I know you're broken, but I love you. 
And I want to see you have victory because God is greater. And as God reigns in your life, there can be freedom from such things. God teaches this over and over again because we're a thick-headed, hard-hearted people. And we are so grateful for your long-suffering and your patience towards us. Fill us with wonder of you. Lord, even in the... As we move into a time of communion, as we move into a time of singing songs and closing out the service, may our wonder and our awe of you just grow and increase here in this place. And that every time we gather together, may we be in awe of you. For you, God, are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name we pray, with the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think it's quite appropriate this morning that we, we talk a little bit about the awe of God and how that's been impacting your lives this week. So how has God been your hero? And, and I might encourage you, um, you may be sitting there thinking this morning that um, what God did wasn't that big. Um, <laughs> or, or, you know, it really won't encourage anybody's heart. You just don't know. Um, but if the Holy Spirit's calling you to speak up this morning, I would challenge you to overcome some whatever fears or things you're facing that you don't want to speak up and, and, and speak up this morning and share with us. All right, Denny, I see that hand. Um, your sermon this morning kind of confirmed, well, it did confirm some things that... Uh, I became aware of this week, and I talked about God's sovereignty and how sometimes we try to, well, I know I do, I kind of li limit my view of him. And um, in this particular case, I happened to be listening. Well, first, each morning I try to get into the Word, then I read the news, play a few games, and then finally I get outside and do something. But as I, I read the news and all this stuff that's happening, around the world, specifically at this time, in Iran, and what took place this last week with the elimination of a terrorist. And all at that, you know, and in my own self, it was like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen now? That was a good thing, but what's going to, you know, I'm not really sure what was happening. And uh, then I was listening to Moody Radio. And one thing that stuck out to me was this person who was speaking said something that hit me pretty hard. And she said, do you know where Christianity is growing at the greatest pace? I didn't have a clue. Where is it? Iran. It's in Iran. I thought, that's got to be God doing it, you know. I couldn't figure it out before, but now I know. I'm absolutely sure. That's God's hand. Amen. We've all prayed for those kinds of things. But boy, do we see it now. Amen. Very cool. Thank you, Denny. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, another reflection on the message this morning, um, this week. Studying and the idea of how long do you try with people that you've had relationships with and who knows who was right or wrong um, but how long um, do you have to put the effort forth and what came to mind was something that I always hear Lois say and that is God's the same today, tomorrow, forever and um, Jesus is going to love me no matter what. So if I give up on that person, then who am I? How does that reflect God's love for me? Um, I can't call myself a Christian if I can't.
continue to love and try. So just a revelation mm. from revelation. <laughs> Amen. This week I was walking around River Park, Riverwalk Park as I often do in the mornings and um, I had a plan for the way I was going to go and um, God directed me a different way and he just kept putting on my heart to go like backwards <laughs> and go this other route and I was like no 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 and finally I'm like okay God if you really want me to just make it really clear and I just still felt that so I it kind of turned back the other way and went along a different path and just had the most amazing conversation with someone that I was passing by that I never would have had had um, I gone the way I thought I was supposed to go. So God really directed me in that and I would just encourage you to listen to him and the small things. Oftentimes I don't um, all the time and, and I feel like I'm missing out on something but this time it was like, yes, thank you God. Amen. Um, those that know me well um, know that I'm struggling with some stuff right now. And last night, I had the opportunity to go to uh, the teen center. And with uh, uh, Jen Snyder, and I don't know if she's here today or not, but and I haven't even had the opportunity to talk to her about it because when I left there last night, I was just kind of shaken up, actually. And I've been, not, not in a bad way, but in a good way, because God's just reiterating stuff in my heart about teens that are struggling. And it's going there last night was something that I that I've been putting off for years quite honestly because of fear I was scared to go down there and God took away all that fear last night because it was beautiful and listening to these kids and they are there's some struggling I just was when I got home last night I was really felt broken over it because Man, these kids are hurting. They are hurting. They are the things that were coming out of their mouths. We're just like, wow. So anyway, I just wanted to share that because um, I just really believe that God is even working there in the in the in the struggling teens of our community. So thanks for letting me share that. God is awesome. Would you stand with me and we'll sing. Today I was challenged um, by the idea that <clears throat> I think sometimes I go um, and I go to do for God without spending time being in awe of him. And then other times I think no, i got to spend time with God, and then I stay there too long, and I don't ever go. Uh, and I think both of those things have been true for me. And uh, in my life, I'm really challenged. Last night, I had a conversation with my wife about things like that, and I realized that the more I can be honest about those struggles, the better, um, the better I can do, walking in that, staying close to Jesus and still going. So thanks, Scott, for that reminder, and thanks, God, for your... Your revelation to John. <clears throat>